Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have our final award season check-in. No, we are not done talking about the films coming out during these next few months, but this is the last time we will be reviewing films before some of these big ceremonies announce their nominations, and we get into shortlists and our contender series. And we will be talking about some of those nominations today. We have more critics' prizes from LA to talk about first. We'll go over the Golden Globe noms, which were announced very recently. But after those, we'll be reviewing and talking about American fiction and poor things. Yeah, when you said last award season check-in, I thought, oh my god, wow, it's already December. Thank god, right? Yeah, I also was like, yeah, thank god, right? (laughs) But no, award season is just getting started, but I think things are starting to click into place a little bit with what we've seen as far as the the first phase go um, with those big critics wins from New York and from LA and then getting the Golden Globe nominations this morning. I feel like we're starting to make sense of some things, but there's still a lot of room to go. But yeah, I think getting into our Oscar contender series will be fun because this has been a great year for films so far. But I think to get started, let's go through the winners from the LA Film Critics Association that we got yesterday. So Celine Song took home the New Generation Award for Past Lives. The Best International Film was Anatomy of a Fall, and the runner-up was Totem. The Best Nonfiction Film, like New York, was Menus Plaisirs Les Trois Gros, and the runner-up was The Eternal Memory. Best score went to The Zone of Interest, and the runner-up was Barbie. Best editing was Anatomy of a Fall. The runner-up was All of Us Strangers. Best production design also went to Barbie, and the runner-up was Poor Things. Best cinematography went to Robbie Ryan for Poor Things, and the runner-up was Rodrigo Prieto for Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon. The best animated feature was The Boy and the Heron, and the runner-up was Robot Dreams. Best Screenplay went to All of Us Strangers, and the runner-up was May December. Best Supporting Performance. So if you remember from last year, the LA Film Critics Association, they changed their prizes to be gender neutral. So we don't have Best Actor and Actress or Best Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress. We have two winners and two runner-ups in each category. So for Supporting Performance... Our winners were Rachel McAdams for Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. Legendary picks. I'm so happy that Mm -hmm. they both won here. And our runners-up were Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon and Ryan Gosling for Barbie. Best lead performance. Our winners were Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fall and The Zone of Interest and Emma Stone for Poor Things. And our runners-up were Andrew Scott for All of Us Strangers and Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Best Director went to Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. And our runner-up was Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things. And Best Film went to The Zone of Interest, with the runner-up being Oppenheimer. What do you think of these nominations as a group? Any key takeaways for you about what they liked out in California? I love the mix of nominees we have here finally we are seeing the zone of interest and i think it's really big that it's in both film and director yes it was resuscitated i'm so happy it's what it needed and it does have a late release so i'm still holding on to hope for that i see the director win as still a potential director spot for the oscars so we still have some time with that and i think as long as it continues to build momentum, it's moving in the right place. They also really loved Poor Things. We'll get into those later. We can also kind of recap how that did with the Globes, and we'll get into that later. I feel like overall, the other ones are pretty standard things we've been seeing so far. Continuing Poor Things, but also Rodrigo Prieto with Barbie and Killers. Anatomy has been steamrolling in international feature, but I love to see it in editing here. Mm -hmm. I really wanted that after I initially saw it, and I don't know. I mean, I think it could be possible going into the Oscars, but that is like a sleeper nomination inspired pick that... I would be really excited to see. There's also a lot of love for All of Us Strangers, Mm -hmm. again, in editing, but also with 
performance. And Andrew Scott also showed up at the Globes. So I'm happy that that is really still in the running and getting its due. And The Holdovers is having a tricky time with critics and with some of the bigger ceremonies and nominations. But Divine, Joy Randolph, continues to show up. And I love to see that. At least she is the overwhelming pick for this movie. I think once we get into Golden Globes, we can talk about that movie a bit more because I do love it a lot. But I love to see her and some of the inspired picks with L.A. How do you feel about the group or is there anything that you really loved seeing? I think putting Lily Gladstone in runner-up for supporting just really left a sour taste in my mouth, I have to say. I, I feel like... There's a reason why she's running for lead. I personally feel like she's the lead of a movie. Screen time is not an accurate way to determine whether someone is lead or supporting. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't think that was a good a good thing for them to do. But to each their own, I suppose. I'm just rooting for her really hard in the actress category. And I worry that this will further cause category confusion. And it's kind of just it's just kind of a messy thing for them to do. But I'm happy with some of the winners, though. Like, personally, the winners in supporting, I do really like. Um, I'm happy that Sandra Huller is getting recognized for Anatomy of a Fall, another one of my favorite lead actress performances of the year. The Zone of Interest coming back, of course. You and I also in our draft, we both picked this as our critics double. You picked Jonathan Glazer and I picked the film. So that was fun. But yeah, I think overall it's interesting. I also love the Zone of Interest in score that nomination and seeing that come or that win and seeing that nomination come through with the Globes. I, I really love to see that. It's interesting also that they did not go for Oppenheimer really anywhere except for runner up in best film. I thought that was interesting. They were much higher on other films, but poor things doing well here. The favorite did well with LA as well. I think this group tends to like this Lanthimos McNamara pairing and oh anatomy of a fall i had this idea that came to me which is that i think the director could potentially get really messy this year <laughs> as in kind of like what happened in 2018 when pavlo pavlikowski showed up and everyone was like whoa how did that happen we always talk about international directors getting in but i started thinking you know what if jonathan glazer and justine trier somehow found their way in i know it's crowded but that branch totally goes their own way. And right now, Anatomy of a Fall, even though it isn't France's selection, it is performing in nearly the same way that Triangle of Sadness did last year. It dominated at the European Film Awards. We have a Palme d'Or winner. It did really well with the Golden Globes. It's picking up wins here and there in categories that are not just international film, like editing, like you mentioned, lead performance. So I'm just wondering what it looks like come Oscars when that voting body is far more international, could we get some surprises in other categories? I think it's very possible that movie is very much alive and doing really well. In that same vein, and Celine Song won this New Generation Award, but maybe she could even get in. I would love that. I never really considered it more of an international feature. Like at the Golden Globes, it got nominated for non-English language film and Celine was nominated for director. So I would love to see her in the conversation. I think that fifth spot is just really open. If the top four are pretty solidified, I mean, we could have a change here or there, but Glazer could be in. Payne is feeling more iffy for the holdovers. But we have Justine Trier, Celine Song, Bradley Cooper even, Cord Jefferson, if the body really loves American fiction and that is showing up. And we'll talk about where it's been nominated and won so far when we review the film. But there are so many different options. I know. For the Oscar, which is really exciting. And I think, you know, whether people see it as a battle for it or I think just praising all of their movies is really important. So getting to question and think about who makes it in and especially with multiple female directors potentially getting in. That's always exciting for this category. I totally agree. Let's move into our Golden Globe nominations, which we had this morning. Did you watch the live stream or these nominations come through or did you just check out a list afterwards? No, I, I woke up to your text. Oh. <laughs> so I said, oh, I should probably look at the nominations now. But Having a 5 a.m. Pacific time live reading Cruel. is 
<laughs> not gonna do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Were you up for it? Yeah, I mean, I I was oh, up. God. I start my day really early, and I like the ritual of watching these early morning announcements come through. Mm-hmm. Like I have my coffee ready have it up on my TV, have it on my computer just in case one is delayed and then I can choose which stream I want to go with. Let me tell you, this was such a Golden Globes type of announcement (laughs) because it was almost like they didn't realize that the live stream was on at first. They were preparing the remarks on the teleprompter going through like, oh, make sure you say this. (laughs) There was one moment when they took a break and the IT guy was just standing up there like drumming on the podium for a few oh, seconds no. it was really funny it was just very much like okay the the globes are gonna globe it's happening again uh, but yeah it's it's different than watching the oscar nominations of course because the pomp and circumstance just isn't the same really because they're the golden globes they're not the oscars and i think a lot of people are just curious to see how these nominations could be different they expanded their membership and whether or not these were going to be the old Golden Globes like we were used to where Sia's music was nominated or if we were going to get really good nominations. And I think for the most part, these nominations were really good. It's it's hard too because there isn't like a PowerPoint slide that goes up like with the Oscars. It's literally just the presenters reading from a paper. So it's hard to mentally, I think, visualize, oh, what missed or what was snubbed or did I hear mm. everything correctly? My favorite moment of the morning was when um, Wilmer Valderrama said Super Mario Bros <laughs> instead of Super <laughs> Mario Brothers. But there are just always funny things like that that come with these announcements. But overall, our leader was Barbie with nine nominations. Next, we had Oppenheimer with eight. Killers of the Flower Moon and Poor Things both had seven apiece and Past Lives had five. These are good movies and I feel like just really strong in the race, which is exciting. I have to tell you, though, so Barbie tied Cabaret's record with nine Mm -hmm. nominations for the Globes, making it the runner-up for most Globe nominations in history. Do you know what the number one? Behind Nashville. I was going to quiz you because I know your favorite movie, (laughs) Nashville. You love Nashville. Which we've come such a far way if Nashville is the most nominated Golden Globes film of all time. That would never happen today. I think we did mention that when we talked about that movie. I'm having a flashback. Oh my god. To like back in 2020 <laughs> when we started the pod and did 1975. <laughs> but yeah, a huge day for Barbie with three song nominations too. I was so excited when they read Dance the Night because I love that one and I was happy to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm Just Ken and What Was I Made For, which What Was I Made For I think is the leader in terms of original song right now, but I was happy to see three get in. Yeah, nominee Dula Peep. I <laughs> am so excited for her. I didn't really see that going to the Oscars, but I think it getting attention, Barbie getting the love it deserves, Barbie also being in the box office achievement but i think these five leaders is amazing anatomy of the fall isn't far behind with four nominations and these movies are all in my top 10 to 15 of the year again so we're talking about movies that critics and audiences love that really showcase where we have been this year at the cinema starting out past lives was the early months of 2023 Mm -hmm. to summer with barbenheimer and early fall with killers and now in winter with poor things and American fiction and maestro coming out soon and films like the color purple, which didn't really do well. You know, it showed up with Fantasia and Danielle with performance nominations, but not in picture, not in director or other categories that maybe, yeah, like it really needed to show up in. I mean, again, Barbie getting the three songs and Color Purple not with at least a couple original songs there to choose from. So I think overall, I feel like they're fairly standard and maybe they did want to be a bit conservative, you know, getting rid of the Hollywood Foreign Press and kind of starting over. But I'm happy, though, with the nominations. Yeah, there are also some inspired nominations like Alma Poisty for... Uh, Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical from Fallen Leaves. Joaquin Phoenix for Bo is Afraid in Best Actor (laughs) in a Comedy. Jump scare. (laughs) 
jump scare truly i do wish that patty lapone could have popped up in supporting mm-hmm. you know i love that performance <laughs> and wish she was there Nicolas Cage in Dream Scenario, Timothy Chalamet for Wonka. I mean, the comedy musical categories are always really funny. Saltburn, I kind of randomly thought that would stay alive here at the Golden Globes just because they love Golden Globe winner Rosamund Pike for Mm -hmm. she won for I Care A Lot. So I thought that she could pop up here. But yeah, I think there were some some interesting picks and some fun surprises. Nothing too off the wall. But the other thing I wanted to bring up about the color purple that's so weird, that was just, for me, like a shoe-in for comedy musical picture. Because yep. they love late-breaking, starry musicals. So it doesn't really make sense that it's not here. And they ha- they've had time to see it. This movie has been screening now for over a month people have seen it so it's just kind of strange that they decided to go with other films there and i like most of the films in the comedy musical category it's not that it's just it's just strange because it's such a textbook golden globes film and oprah's campaigning so hard for the movie i feel like the entire cast has as well lots of q a's and videos especially of danielle and her story taking this from stage to screen. Same with Fantasia. And yes, they were nominated, but I really did expect to see more of them. Maybe even Coleman Domingo in supporting. You never know. So that was a, a big miss for me. Taraji P. Henson, too, who was my favorite performance in the movie. Um, I thought she could maybe make it in here, too. But I don't think it's dead yet. I think this could be a big SAG movie still. So we can, I think we have to wait and see for that one. But it did miss NBR and AFI, too. It's a big Christmas Day release, so I think audiences will still go and see it. And I think it's just going to be a late-breaking one that may shock people in a way when we get shortlists or nominations next month. But I really do love to see Nyad showing up. I, I was going to ask you about that, too. This. <laughs> I know you love Nyad. <laughs> but Annette Benning in lead and Jodie Foster in supporting. I think Jodie could really, really happen come Oscars. I'm, I'm changing my categories, and Jodie is in for me. And it's just exciting to have a Diet Coke rep potentially be our Oscar nominee. Yes, we love <laughs> Jodie Foster. <laughs> Her character, Bonnie, as I'm holding my Diet Coke right now <laughs> in Nyad. I mean, we talked about she steals the show in Nyad. And she's also a Globes favorite. Remember when she won for the Mauritanian when she was wearing her fancy pajamas? Yeah. So her being here, I think, I don't know, she deserves it. I loved her in that movie. And I think that Annette Benning showing up too. Everyone's been counting her out. But that's a very, very actor-friendly performance. I think we need to definitely keep an eye on SAG to see how that goes. Mm -hmm. But talking about NIAD leading into Netflix and how many pictures that they have. NIAD, we have Maestro. We have Bradley showing up in Director, which I think is really big. But also with Rustin, with Coleman and Bradley, those I kind of expected to show up in Actor. Mm -hmm. But I do have to note that Road to Freedom from Rustin for Original Song is still alive one of my picks from the draft and I am so happy that I stood behind it. You know, you knew it and you also followed the age-old tradition of go with the song that has a title that would be on a motivational poster or Mm -hmm. some sort of collateral like that. I think that that will serve you well anytime you're predicting in the original song category. I think it makes sense that it's here. Yeah, as far as Netflix goes, it's interesting because... I know there's a lot of debate around whether or not May-December was a drama or a comedy. They chose to run it in comedy and it scooped up nominations. I wish it got a screenplay nomination. I'm really rooting for that to still happen at the Oscars. I absolutely think it still can. But it made its way into Best Picture, Comedy or Musical. Also got nominations for Natalie Portman in Lead Actress. She would be my winner in the category. Personally, I feel like what she does in that film is so strong and just so surprising and a great use of her skills as an actress. Her comedic skills as an actress, too. I think she's hysterical in the movie. She's very funny. 
And Julianne Moore and Charles Melton also made it into the supporting categories, which I'm hoping will also carry over to the Oscars as well for both of them. So it's hard because the Globes give us six nominees now in each category. So when we're thinking about Mm -hmm. the Oscars, we have to think about, okay, who are we going to take out? Who are we going to replace? Who are, what's going to happen here? Do we necessarily need additional nominations? No. I mean, you know me, I'd like to go back to five best picture nominees at the Oscars, but um, I think overall, I was happy to see May, December do well. Maestro, I think with that one, what we're seeing now too is, okay, now we're getting into the phase of the season where Maestro is going to do well because it was never, I think, going to be a critics movie. It wasn't going to perform well with the New York Film Critics Circle or LA. That didn't seem right. It cost too much money for the indie spirits or anything like that. And now we're heading into the part of the season where I think Maestro is going to be getting more attention. And I think Bradley Cooper can win actor here. That's where it starts. He has a really great shot. And having his Actors on Actors interview with Emma Stone, they're both very highly regarded in their field. But in these movies, too, they are showstoppers. They're giving career best performances. And they talk about like how long they've been working on these roles and performances. And they're also both producers on the movie. So... They've been involved with them for so long, and I think that'll show with audiences and nominations here on out. So yeah, just definitely some to look at. I do want to mention for score, we mentioned The Zone of Interest and Mika Levy getting in, but Joe Hisaichi also getting in for Boy and the Heron. I was probably most ecstatic about that because it's his first time being nominated here, and I really hope that there's a chance with him at the Oscars. Yeah, I was really excited about that. I would say the the nominations where I was most excited were Joe Hisaichi, Dance the Night, Kaylee Spaney, and Drama Actress. I'm so predictable. This is so sad. But I'm totally desensitized to Bradley Cooper now because when he was, when his name was read off for Best Director, I didn't even react. This is the, the award season trauma from 2018 kicking in where I'm just going through the motions with him. Like, I'm happy for nominations that come through, but I'm not getting emotionally invested because I can't do it anymore. I do want to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer because I feel like this has really been the story of the year. And the fact that these two movies are, you know, Barbie, I think, did really well with L.A. Oppenheimer did really well with New York which makes so much sense. It is funny that these two films have really come out on top throughout the year and have shown that people really like them in both critical spaces. And now I think moving into the industry, we're going to see that love really expand as we go into the guilds and go into, you know, thinking about performances and the text because these films are so well made and audiences really loved both of them. So I feel like to have Barbie and Oppenheimer both at the top just makes so much sense for the year. I mentioned Emma and Bradley, but Margot was also nominated, which I was maybe not surprised by with the six nominations, but she's also a producer on her movie. So It's just really cool to see actors being nominated for their movies in different categories and to see how collaborative they've been with them. And Barbenheimer specifically, I love that they're the two highest nominated films here. I think they're both going to be really highly nominated at the Oscars too. And they really have showcased the year in film having been released in July and really lasting. I mean, we're now talking about them being on streaming and out on DVD and Blu-ray. So I think looking forward and in the coming years, we'll look back and think of Barbie and Oppenheimer, see them winning at the Oscars and say they finally got it right. Yeah, we could see a huge winner come Oscar night. We'll see, though. I mean, there are other movies waiting in the wings, right? Like people could really love Killers of the Flower Moon and go around that. American fiction. I feel like audiences will really respond to poor things is doing really well. So we'll see. It's still early, but the way things are shaking out so far, I'm choosing to be very positive. And one more Golden Globesy movie that we haven't mentioned that hasn't been mentioned this whole season is Air. Oh my God. <laughs> showed up. I'm surprised Viola didn't show up for it. Me too. Me too. I was kind of sad she didn't when the movie did. Yeah. When it showed up in picture and for Matt Damon in comedy for actor. So I thought that was just 
a very them thing to do, but Mm -hmm. hopefully will make people happy at home because this movie, again, from the early months of the year, very beloved by so many audiences. Oh, air. I also thought of you when that popped up. Again, though, the actor in a comedy musical category is so funny. Just looking at those performances, Mm -hmm. it does make you want supporting to be split into those two categories as well right. just to see who, get, who could we could get because like would we have gotten patty lapone would we have gotten chris messina an air i don't know you know there <laughs> there are all sorts of options that we could have that make the golden globes fun it's not really a serious thing when you think about it i try not to take the golden globes too seriously and i know they've been very up and down in the past with how we've covered them and how people talk about them but i think now i just look at them as a fun way for us to get things started too they are fun and looking back they used to have really good track records for what would go on to win or at least be nominated at the oscars and i think our winners here if they choose to go the more serious route will be so interesting to look at especially with motion picture like will they go with Oppenheimer or will they go with Killers Mm -hmm. will they go in comedy or musical like with Barbie Poor Things or American Fiction right and like last year they went with Banshees and the Fablemans and everything everywhere all at once ended up winning the Oscar yeah and we can go through with actor and actress too that you know things are split and depending on who wins I think could really affect the Oscars. Mm -hmm. So let's get into two of those movies that could really steal it from Barbenheimer since we've mentioned that quite a bit. But yeah, first off, we'll talk about Poor Things. The description here, brought back to life by an unorthodox scientist, a young woman runs off with a lawyer on a whirlwind adventure across the continents. Free from the prejudices of her time, she grows steadfast in her purpose to stand for equality and liberation. This is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and stars Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, and Rami Youssef. Awards so far, it won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. With NBR, Mark Ruffalo won for supporting performance, and Tony McNamara won for screenplay. At LA, like we mentioned earlier, Emma Stone won for lead performance, and Robbie Ryan won for cinematography and had runners-up in production design and director. It was considered one of AFI's top 10 movies of the year. It won the Camera Image Bronze Frog, which was third place behind The New Boy and El Conde, and the Audience Award there. And then nominations, it was nominated for International Feature at the Gotham's, was up at the Golden Globes in Musical or Comedy for Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actress for Stone, Supporting Actor for Defoe and Ruffalo, and Score for Jerskin Fendrix. So talk a little bit more about your thoughts on Poor Things and maybe what you had trouble with. So I think I'm going to start out by saying that I am generally not very high on Yorgos Lanthimos as a filmmaker, with the exception of The Favorite. I really liked The Favorite, but his earlier movies, The Lobster, Dogtooth, I really, really do not connect with. There's just something about him that keeps me at a distance. And I think a big part of that is that one filmmaker he's compared to frequently is Lars von Trier, who I also do not particularly care for in terms of just his work, with the exception of Melancholia, which I do like. When I saw Poor Things at Telluride, I really liked it. I was on its wavelength, blame it on the altitude. I don't know. And I think what I had fixated on there really were the performances, which I still think are excellent. I think that what Emma Stone is doing is really exciting and really fun to watch. It is kind of like a a live wire act the entire time. And the way that she builds that character, I think, is really smart. Each choice feels like a natural step for that character. The role could go into cartoon very easily, but it doesn't. I think she finds a lot of beauty in Bella Baxter and her physical performance is great. I love the beginning of the movie when she's very toddler-like. We can get into all of this, but I think her movements are hysterical. The way she moves her arms around and slams things around, I think is just great. I love Willem Dafoe. I think his performance is fantastic too. And I love the worlds that it creates. I mean, the costumes and the production design, it really is this visual feast. 
And when I revisited it, I still loved those things, but I was missing the more. I was missing something that made it a truly great film. And it's hard because I think that the politics of the film are so simple. They're incredibly opaque. It's a very simplistic rendering of feminism that I just wanted to go further. Ultimately, this film, it really is this, it begins as this exploration of the female gothic, which is this, you know, a genre in literature where women and girls often find themselves trapped in situations with a man who either wants to sleep with them or just imprison them forever. And it's about that exploration out of that. But I feel like this film walks right up to those darker things and it just doesn't touch them. And I, and because it's Lanthimos, I wanted him to touch them because I actually think like if he went back into that older version of himself, that earlier version of himself, where he was making these things that were actually transgressive and really difficult, I think this film would have had a lot to say. But instead, I find that it just doesn't really have anything to say except for, as a woman, just take it all in, you know, take all these things in, find sexual liberation, like encounter the world. And in reality, it just, again, feels very simple. And I just wanted more. It felt, but yeah, just kind of like he wanted to check off some boxes. And and with that approach, I felt like it wasn't saying much. It was just kind of a beautiful exploration. I also really don't like the ending. I feel like that is just Lanthimos copping out a bit, but we can get into more of that. I don't want to be harsh on it because I think that there are a lot of things to really love about the film and that I still really liked when I rewatched it. I just wanted it. I wanted the politics to be stronger. Lanthimos in planning for the movie could have, you know, struggled with that and maybe wanted to go further, but in the end wanted to make a movie that the people could connect with and that despite having characters that are hard to comprehend or really complex and potentially unlikable, able to connect with them. And I think that's what he made. And I understand your view of it seeming simple because it does by the end. You know, it's a pretty linear story. I love how he divulges information and tells it in a haphazard way at times. It, It keeps you guessing along the way. But it really does come down to his vision and how he portrays the story and how he shows it because we really haven't had a movie like this in a long time one that is just so distorted and wicked yet one that is so saturated and vibrant and getting to see the world through Bella Baxter's eyes the Emma Stone character I think the vision of the movie really furthers that and we get to see things that are so unearthly and that's what I really loved about the movie. I I think all of the elements are just so stellar. I think this movie could nearly max out with nominations because of how the crafts work together. And everything from makeup and hair to production design to cinematography, every single element is working at a 10. And as a visionary, I think that's where Lanthimos succeeded. And I think before the movie came out, I was worried too because of this feminist tale and You know, it's a guy directing it, and we've heard this time and again where they just don't get it right, and, you know, their their view is skewed. But Emma Stone is also the producer of the film, and she'll be nominated, if it is nominated at the Oscars, Mm -hmm. she'll be nominated for picture. So I have to trust that she had a really strong viewpoint and opinion on how to depict things, and, you know, with her character, seeing her in interviews, she's so candid, and... I can only imagine on set if she wasn't happy with something that she would have spoke her mind. So I think what we get from her is a career best, just something I would have never expected. And I think we'll have audiences definitely rooting for it. Yeah, no, I think on a couple things that you said, one, I think, yeah, Emma Stone's role as producer and the way that she speaks about the film and her performance in the film, any comments around, you know, the sex in the film or the nudity in the film feeling exploitative or gratuitous or anything like that, those feel very disingenuous to me. She was, you know, very clearly involved as a producer and had a hand in a lot of the decisions that went into this film. And it is a risky out there performance. And I think She nails it. It's a performance with a high degree of difficulty. I think, though, in what you said about, you know, Lanthimos wanting to make something for audiences and make something that people could connect with, 
And, and I think that's, that's just part of the issue I think that I had with it is that I just, I don't necessarily expect that from someone like him as a filmmaker. I really expect him to push it and push it and push it. And I feel like here you get the idea that he's pushing it, but it's just not funny after the fifth time that you hear the same joke or the same delivery, at least to me, like that just, it felt a bit repetitive and tedious and I wanted to be surprised and instead, I felt like certain things were a bit more on the nose in terms of the storytelling. Oh, of course, you know, this is what Bella's going through at this chapter in her life. These men, they're so, they're rendered so simply. It's like they're just flat and jealous. And it's like you have the, <laughs> the Duncan Wedderburn character, the Mark Ruffalo character, who is just one version of this story is kind of cad turned jealous villain character who's only one-upped by what I will call a great cameo in the end. And then that's at a contrast to Rami Youssef, who's, you know, willing to wait for marriage. And it's all, I think, yeah, just, I, I think I just wanted more. Because in The Favorite, I think he really pushes it. And when we get that ending in The Favorite, you're like, oh, damn. He, he went there to a place that felt hard to live with. And I think this felt, just felt tidy for me. And I understand why. And it's not like I'm, I'm wishing the worst to happen to this character. I'm not. But I think that I, yeah, I just, I think I just wanted a little bit more than the version of exploring femininity that we got. But also, like, maybe it's not his place to do so. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, you know, his version of the movie. But there was a reading that my friend got from the movie that I didn't really see and I absolutely love it, which is funny because this is distributed by Searchlight, but it has such an anti-Disney tale. And he noticed that a lot of the costumes are reminiscent of the Disney princesses. And as she goes through her life, she transitions between princesses and the struggles that they were having. And in the end, it's a an anti-Disney feminist tale of you don't need men you don't need these prince charmings to make you happy but i love that like initially she's snow white when duncan awakens her and takes her off on this journey but then in lisbon she runs away as cinderella this blue gown and then there's a scene where they're dancing and she has this pink skirt and if you think back to the little mermaid there's a scene where Ariel is wearing a pink dress and mm. you know like the song legs are required for jumping dancing furious jumping too right as they say in the yeah. movie <laughs> <laughs> which is probably another connection and then later on you know she transforms and educates herself as Belle in this yellow gown Belle translating to Bella there are definitely layers that you can read into and see you know whether it's this or whether it's the extremely sex positive, even production design, let alone what's happening on screen with the actors, but you have penis shaped, vagina shaped light switches or windows. And there are just so many details to capture your eye from the ceiling to the backdrops and the sets. It's every shot is just something new and really breathtaking. While you were talking about the costumes and the imagery, whether it's um, like Yannick or Phallic, I talked to Holly Waddington, the costume designer for this movie, and it was just a joy to speak to her because I think the costumes are incredible for the movie. But one of the things that we talked about was actually when she goes to Paris and she has that really ugly shade of yellow that coat it looks like a raincoat almost like a poncho cape that she's wearing when she's outside in the snow it's totally inappropriate for the weather and I was asking her about that because it just catches your eye it's such an interesting look and she was inspired by the look of Victorian condoms making that the um the rubber and the latex look that's what she tapped into and she said that when mm. Bella was standing there outside in the snow, she wanted her to appear both phallic and saintly. And I thought that was just so brilliant. As an illustration of this character, right? She's someone who is, she's at this point in her life where she's taking in all this information and she's learning and she's kind of approaching this intellectual ideal, right? That's within her. But also at the same time, 
she has discovered her sexuality and is about to enter a phase in her life where, like, she's a sex worker in this brothel in Paris run by the fabulous tattooed Catherine Hunter. I gasped when I saw her, and I think she's she's great in the movie, too. But the costumes also, what I really love about them, and what we talked about is that when you're a little kid, you wear a lot of things that don't match or make any kind of sense together. So throughout the movie, we'll see Bella wearing a cape that doesn't go with the shorts that she's wearing or a skirt that's missing a jacket because that's what a toddler would pick out. It's like she's off on her own suddenly and she doesn't know how to dress herself because she would have had Mrs. Prim, that character before, helping her pick out her outfits and now she's left to her own devices and that's what she's choosing to pick for herself. And at the beginning of the movie, she's not wearing much clothing at all because when little kids are growing up, they tend to, especially if they're at home, just take off their clothes. They don't like wearing clothing. And that's how she's responding via the costume design, which again, I just like, I think the way that costume designers and production designers work together is so interesting. And Lanthimos, one of the things that he does as a creator that I think is really interesting and just really cool is that he has the production design team work separately from the costume designer and they can't look at what each other's coming up with. They just have the story and the idea. So they're able to kind of form their own things and come up with their own creative processes. And then when they're able to finally meet and connect, one of the things that Holly Waddington shared was she was so surprised at how connected she and her and Shona Heath the production designer were without even looking at each other's work. Like they just kind of knew based on how detailed the script was and their conversations with Yorgos of where to take it. And I think it's so crazy when you look at things like how the world looks in Lisbon and the color scheme and just how vibrant that all is to how well her costumes look there, right? The the shorts with the little jacket with those crazy sunglasses and her wig. It's just like, oh my God, you just think this world is so well put together and creative. And we need more movies like that that just have a fun, strange vision. I think you're right. Like audiences, when they go see this, will feel, you know, yes, it's really weird. It's so strange. But at the same time, I think they're going to to really like just being sucked into a world that is so unlike anything they've really seen before. Yeah, it just feels very uninhibited and like you're experiencing things for the first time like her character is. I love all of that reading of the costumes, the production design, the cinematography. I do like the fish lens at times because it, again, is that distorted view of the world and whether that's through Bella or God, Godwin. The Willem Dafoe character <laughs> and his like very Dr. Jekyll kind of vibe, mm-hmm. they mesh really well. So even though it switches between that and like a normal view, and I think as the movie goes on, it transitions to more of a traditional wide vision. I mean, Lanthimos also loves like a wide angle for cinematography, but I think it works in this case. Whereas in other movies, it might be like super jarring for people. And I think people will still think that. But again, with a story that is so out there like this is, they definitely go well together. Yeah, I tend to not like that fisheye. That's just one of my my things that I have trouble with. Mm -hmm. But I actually think it, it does make a lot of sense in certain places in the film. I think especially early when our task as viewers really is to take everything in and experience that feeling of being disoriented like when you're young and just everything is new and you're being exposed to this new world like I I I liked it there and I again I really loved the early section of the movie the black and white in London that was when I thought oh this is something that I'm you know I'm really on the wavelength of this movie and then I think I just got I don't know again on second watch it just it worked less for me as it went the in the black and white to color is very Wizard of Oz I think that's a little bit expected but I think that the visual choices do make a lot of sense with Bella's journey I also wanted to point out that I do think that the the sequences in the brothel I really like how they're designed because as a person who's watched a lot of costume dramas and period films where if you go into 
a brothel in Paris in one of those films or TV shows, you tend to expect a particular look. And this is unlike anything I've seen as far as costume design, how the characters interact with each other, how the space itself looks. It's just, it's very different. So I think I I applaud them, like the creative team behind this movie for actually stepping outside of the box and creating something new and original when it comes to how spaces we might be familiar with from other works set in this time, like this is 19th century, how other works from that time tend to look because this is very different. It's very much its own thing and not wed to a particular period. I guess in that way, you would almost expect it to have like an old Hollywood look to it, to period movies, and it really doesn't. No, it's it's interesting because it feels like, yes, it's Victorian, but it's also, it feels futuristic at times. I like that it doesn't feel beholden to a certain period's rules. Do I think setting it in the Victorian era makes it a bit convenient for its politics? Yes, I do. But I also understand, right, why that also makes sense as a really, you know, a handy time to be going into for this character where men ruled society and where things were rapidly changing at the same time. And it was it's kind of a perfect playground for a character like Bella. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you feel about the film's awards potential? Like you said, I think this could get double digit nominations because I think that, again, while I have my reservations about the story itself and some of the choices that it makes, I think that in terms of crafts, I mean, first, this made the list of VFX finalists for the Oscars. We'll get the shortlist soon, but I think if it makes it there, I mean, it could it could win the Oscar. So we could count on maybe visual effects costume design, makeup and hairstyling, Willem Dafoe's entire face (laughs) in this movie as this character. That is a makeup Mm -hmm. showcase. Then we have production design. Then what else do we have? I mean, score. Fendrix got in today at the Golden Globes. We have cinematography, I think it happened. And then we get into performances and you think, okay, are we getting three I really mm-hmm. hope Willem Dafoe gets in because he's my favorite performance in the movie. I really love him. I think he's hilarious and also just has so many great scenes with Emma Stone. I think they work really well together. I like Dafoe and, you know, I would love to finally see him in after rooting for him for years. I know. But <laughs> on my rewatch, I was really focusing on him and Mark Ruffalo to see. And we know the Academy loves Mark Ruffalo to begin with. And I think he has the showier performance. Mm -hmm. He has the more easily nominated performance. And that goes with his accent and how villainous he is and what he gets to do throughout the movie. I mean, he has a full transformation. Godwin is more stable. He's a doctor. He's playing Bella's father. And he has some really great moments and funny lines. But I think Ruffalo might have the edge on getting in. We just really have to see because supporting actor will be tight Mm -hmm. if we can get two nominees from this movie. But I agree with all the other categories. Also screenplay. Again, the funny lines Mm -hmm. just insane. Like Bella saying, why do people never do this all the time? Talking about sex. And when she spits out the food and says, I must go punch that baby. (laughs) I love when she wants to punch the baby. Why must I keep it in my mouth if I find it revolting? exactly it's like people will be like oh my god they're finally saying it on screen and talking about these things and it's cathartic in that way one more disney mention was that duncan at one time says i'll show you a whole new world (laughs) so there's another aladdin reference i love the idea of yorgos lanthimos sitting around watching disney movies in the same way that i love how emma stone is trying to get him to watch the real housewives of salt lake city I love that she has made this her mission because the idea of him watching that is too good to be true. It is so funny. I mean, he kind of made his own twisted housewives version in this movie. Yeah. Which is so funny. I mean, Mark Ruffalo is not (laughs) far off how a lot of the real housewives husbands act, if I'm being candid. The way that they lose their money, blame their wives, you know, everything. It's it's too good. Um, I do also love when he yells Bella in the same way that we hear Stella and Streetcar. Very funny. So if we count everything up, 
including picture and director. That's nearly 13 nominations, which is almost like a record high, at least tied for. It's tight, and I don't think it'll happen, but even that being possible shows that this movie is going to be, I think, well-received by the Academy. So lots of potential. Definitely a movie we'll be talking about in our Contender series. And I think, too... An interesting thing to consider really is that I think we could have four movies, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Poor Things with double digit nominations. So we'll see how the wins actually work out or how, you know, if any fatigue (laughs) sets in during the season. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's how it's looking right now, I think. How they spread the wealth. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I'm going to give my Oscar to Shona Heath for production design. I think the world that we live in is very much Lanthimos's vision. And I think rewatching the movie was most exciting because I was able to notice new things and to experience this world again. I just really loved seeing these rich, eccentric locations and set designs that feel both lived in and out of place at the same time. There's a lot of conflict going on, and that's what I really liked about the film and all of its elements. What Oscar would you give it? I think I'm also going to go with production design. I feel like it's really hard to ignore those worlds that you're in. I mean, you just get really, really swept up in all of it. And as the movie transitions from London to Lisbon to Alexandria to Paris back to London, we get entirely new versions of those worlds in every stage. Like I mentioned, I love how the brothel looks in Paris, and I love this really drab, wintry version of Paris on the exterior, and then inside, it's a lot warmer, and she's using a lot of, like, flesh-colored fabrics and lights and um, things around that space. I find that really cool. When Bella also gets more into her, like, dark academia phase, I will call it, as she's becoming an intellectual and studying medicine. Like, I love those lecture hall spaces. I love the all of the interiors and all of the designed worlds created. I love the black and white and the color. I think today I'm thinking more about the production design, so I'm going to say that. Okay, next up we have American Fiction. Description here, Monk is a frustrated novelist who's fed up with the establishment that profits from black entertainment that relies on tired and offensive tropes. To prove his point, he uses a pen name to write an outlandish black book of his own, a book that propels him to the heart of hypocrisy and the madness he claims to disdain. This was directed by Cord Jefferson and stars Jeffrey Wright, Issa Rae, Sterling K. Brown, Erica Alexander, Tracy Ellis Ross, and more. Award so far this year, this won the People's Choice Award at TIFF. It was listed as one of AFI's top 10 movies this year, At the L.A. Film Critics Association, Jeffrey Wright was runner-up for lead performance, and it won the Best Picture Prize with the D.C. Critics. Um, For nominations, Jeffrey Wright was also nominated for lead performance at the Gotham Awards and the Spirit Awards, and was also nominated for actor in a musical or comedy today at the Golden Globes. The film itself was also nominated in Best Picture at the Golden Globes for musical or comedy. And also at the Independent Spirit Award, it's been nominated for Feature, Screenplay, Supporting Performance for Erica Alexander, and Sterling K. Brown. So it is here to stay this award season. I think that's safe to say. But um, when did you first watch American Fiction and how did you like the film? I first saw American Fiction about a month ago, I want to say. There was a screening with Film Independent and Cord Jefferson came and gave a Q&A afterwards, which was really exciting just to hear about his process and how the story came to him, his personal connection to it, and what he expects from viewers and, you know, how viewers may feel conflicted or seen and how he wants people to embrace that. I really enjoyed hearing that because what the film is saying is really pointed and it's funny and there's a bold commentary on society and certain people being performative towards racial politics Mm -hmm. and consuming like black literature and that's really what the movie focuses on is this one perspective of an author of monk and it to me is a crowd pleaser i think people are going to be talking about this movie as they should and there's a lot to be said after the movie ends i love the ending i love interesting 
okay. what it's doing and how it makes you think about things in different ways of, you know, this ending for Monk or how he continues on and what happens in this relationship. He dates Coraline, the Eric Alexander character, and there's some tension and drama there that really made me feel for her more than him. And I think that gets into relationships and how people kind of wall certain things off and aren't fully open with each other. Mm -hmm. So I think it opens doors to other conversations as well, not just what's being shown on screen. But this movie is really funny. The thing that, you know, I laughed at after the movie is there was one person that stood up (laughs) standing ovation clapping screaming for this movie and it was a white woman and i said oh my god did she understand the movie i i really want to know what Cord jefferson if he could off the record just answer the question of how he feels about this movie winning audience awards with predominantly white audiences like i just i'm so curious what he thinks about that because In a similar vein, what I've noticed in theaters around New York specifically is that when this trailer plays, there's this moment when in the trailer, and it's a really good moment in the movie too, when Issa Rae is reading the excerpt from her book and the one white lady in the crowd just stands up and starts clapping. During that moment, without fail, I always notice that in the audience, people are cackling Like laughing in a way that they want you to notice that they're laughing. (laughs) I will describe it Mm -hmm. that way. And it's just, it's funny because I think my favorite thing about the movie that he does is that at the same time that this satire is going on of the monk character writing this book under the pen name, the satirical storyline happening at the same time, There's this family drama going on, like you mentioned. He and Sterling K. Brown, like their mother has Alzheimer's and they're putting her into an assisted living facility. He and his brother have a relationship that's a bit difficult. He's um, dating the Erica Alexander character, Coraline, like you mentioned, and they have relationship struggles. And in this part of the movie, it's like Cord Jefferson is saying, this is the type of story of the black experience that doesn't get to be told because you know, studios and distributors and all of these white people in particular think that the black experience and that a black story is one thing. And here, you know, he's subverting that and having you watch a story that we would usually see on screen as something that would belong to white characters. And instead, it's about a black family. And I think that that's like, that's such an interesting thing that he's doing with the script and with the movie that made me, I think, step back and think, oh, that's like, it's a very smart way to play with the script. I think it's a bit disorienting sometimes as it goes back and forth, because I think that you end up kind of preferring one part of the story over the other. But I think that's also purposeful. It's almost like he's asking you as an audience, what are you more comfortable with? What do you tend to associate with stories by, you know, creators like me? I don't know. I think it's it's a difficult one to untangle. And I wish it were a bit meaner and feistier in what it had to say Um, in terms of its satire. I thought of Bamboozled a lot, the Spike Lee film, and how that film is not a crowd pleaser in the way that this film is. And I think that... I I wanted a little bit more of that from this one, but I also think everything that Core Jefferson is doing here, something that for a first time filmmaker too, is just really confident work that does, I think, make you think. And I do agree with you. I think that this will be a film that a lot of people like. It's very watchable and that gets you talking too. It really makes you self-aware of what you say and do and what you consume. So I think even that alone is enough to get the ball rolling in the right direction after the movie and and making you question how you react to this movie. Mm-hmm. But Cord was overwhelmingly positive. You know, there's a line about the Hamptons in the movie and he was there during the festival when it aired and everyone loved it. And he just really loves that people are seeing it, whether... You know, you're laughing at yourself or you're cringing. I think that's, you know, an important response. And you have to ask yourself why and, you know, what can you do about that? I think he functions the story in an interesting way, let alone, you know, how the movie ends, but somewhat frames the movie as a screenplay. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not only showing you the black experience and how the entertainment world chooses to show certain things and what it shows really it's distilled down to a few choices but there's a creativity in that as well and i really liked the family elements and getting to see these characters i just love 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 tracy ellis ross mm-hmm. i did too and i wanted her in the entire movie but her charisma and heart in those scenes especially in the beginning in those scenes when she meets Monk, he hasn't been home for a long time, and they just kind of fall in. She tells this really funny joke, <laughs> and I just wanted so much more of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And at first, for the beginning part of the movie, and she does, she isn't in too much of it. Like she's really just in the beginning section of the film. I thought to myself, she is running away with this movie. She's great. I really loved her. And then I would say, too, I really loved Sterling K. Brown. But Jeffrey Wright, I mean, I think there's a reason why he's being celebrated for this. I think he is. He's really funny and he's really good at doing that kind of deadpan humor at times, being really serious, being kind of a curmudgeon. But he's playing both of these characters. He's playing the monk character and he's playing the the pseudonym who people want him to be and I think that's he makes a lot of really funny choices across both versions of the character that I really liked and Jeffrey Wright like we mentioned earlier he was nominated for a Golden Globe and was runner-up with the LA Film Critics Association what do you think about American Fiction's awards potential is it just Jeffrey Wright is it more what do you think when it initially showed up at TIFF I was very uncertain I hadn't heard of this movie before but I think it continuing to show up means that it's going to show up at the Oscars in a big way. I think we can expect picture. I mentioned Cord Jefferson maybe being up for director earlier. I think it has a great potential in adapted screenplay. Some of these lines just are searing and really hit you in the gut. And during the movie, when these lines come up, people are like, oh, yeah. Like You can hear people audibly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the audience reacting some of my favorites were enemies see each other better than friends. People are more than their worst deed. So I think the way it's breaking down stereotypes or understanding characters better and how we see each other, I think it is so smart. And that's part of why it's a crowd pleaser and why people will love this. Jeffrey Wright is the question mm-hmm. for actor. I think it's really either Jeffrey Wright or Paul Giamatti in that fifth spot. Some people have Paul higher, but I think it will depend on how people see those two movies in particular, mm-hmm. the holdovers in American fiction that maybe have fewer potential nominations and how much the Academy loves them. Because if American fiction shows up in picture, screenplay, and actor then we may see it come up in other categories as well. Mm-hmm. I don't quite foresee supporting performances being up, but that doesn't mean that Sterling K. Brown and Eric Alexander, like at the Spirit Awards, aren't giving their best performances. I think Erica especially is just so captivating and real, and she's a great foil to Monk and being able to bounce ideas off of her. So yeah, I think overall it will have a good showing and we'll really have to see in the next few weeks and month to see if it's like overwhelmingly so or just modestly. I think so, right? In some ways I can see this being a best picture spoiler, depending on how well it does, just because it is a film that's really timely. It has political themes. It's also a family story. I think that the ending, like you mentioned, will get people talking and... It could be one of those where if we see this win screenplay and adapted in a field with poor things, Oppenheimer and Killers, it's winning the big one. If if we see that. Now, it missed screenplay at the Globes, which maybe is a red flag, maybe not. But I think this could appear in SAG Ensemble. People love Issa Rae, Tracy Ellis Ross, Jeffrey Wright, Sterling K. Brown, like the cast, I think. I feel like, yeah, people will really like it and... That cast also seems like one that people would want to meet and would want to talk to. And if you get them on stage in front of a room, I feel like it would be a lot of fun. So I don't know. I think it could do really well there. But 
yeah, I don't see this being like a big nomination getter in the way that Poor Things is. It's not a film with a lot of, you know, visual majesty or anything like that. But I think it will really connect with people. And I think that means it'll be in picture, screenplay, and I think Jeffrey Wright will be in. I think that Coleman Domingo is actually vulnerable for Rustin, maybe. Just because that movie... If, so sad. I know. I, that's just my opinion, though. It's a very Academy-friendly performance and I think he'll show up other places too but it's just one of those things where if you have Bradley Cooper, Paul Giamatti, Leonardo DiCaprio, Killian Murphy, the four of them all have movies that the Academy will probably like more than Rustin in terms of just what they're watching and then if you think for the fifth spot if that could be Jeffrey Wright or Coleman Domingo they will probably like American fiction more than Rustin now that's also not how it works all the time in actor but it could go that way Andrew Scott also got keeps getting a boost here and there so he's very much in the mix I don't know actors interesting Paul could also miss like I I could see that happening too it's a much more subtle performance I would say that people Mm -hmm. kind of expect from him but that doesn't mean it's not great I think he's he's great in the holdovers Okay, and if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I'm going to go with screenplay. I think that the movie succeeds because of the writing and the creativity that Core Jefferson has in making this film a blend between a family drama and a sharp satire. I think that that's the reason why it's connecting with people and why it's a film that audiences will be talking about this year and why it's such a strong first feature. What about you? I'm also going to give it screenplay. I think what Jefferson does with the score and adapting it from Percival Everett's novel Erasure plays so well on screen. And, you know, with the characters, with the dialogue itself and where he takes the story, I think it's a beautiful movie, one that's easy to consume that I wouldn't mind talking about for the rest of the season. I think it's great. It works on a rewatch and all the characters are either funny or really heartfelt and real. And that's partly why this story resonated with him is that he had a really personal experience similar to this and put those human touches from his own life into the story. And that's why it feels so lived in. So yeah, I love the screenplay. Great. So that was our last award season check-in of 2023. We will be back in the new year with more reviews of some of our last 2023 releases and sharing our favorite movies of the year with some superlatives. But next time on Oscar Wilde, we have a very special occasion. It's our 200th episode. Can you believe we've done 200 episodes? (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) not. (laughs) It's so it's so wild to to think about really the fact that we started this show a few years ago at this point and We're still doing it and we still really love doing it. It's just something I think to be really excited about. So we will be doing the Oscar Wilde Top 200, where we will be sharing 200 of our favorite things that relate to film and the Oscars. We'll be including movies, actresses, some of our favorite nominations from different categories. We have so many things to share and I'm really excited for this too. 200 episodes... It's quite a milestone. We've covered so much on the pod, but it also, I don't know, has flown by in a way. So yeah, yeah, this will be, I think, a nice way to sum up who we are, who Oscar Wilde is and has become, and things that really excite us about Hollywood and the entertainment industry. We won't cry on the air. That would be too much for us. We only cry in movies, (laughs) not on the air. (laughs) But yeah, no, it'll be fun. We'll see. But thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe for a small fee on Patreon where you can hear our After Dark series. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.